back in 2010, Michael Gibson found himself with a brand new job at a high-powered hedge fund, even though he knew almost nothing about finance. He had studied philosophy, nearly completing a PhD in it at Oxford University. At the time, he was working as a freelance tech journalist. Then he had gone with some friends to a party for a utopian organization called the Seasteading Institute, which helps people start alternative societies out in the open ocean. Someone there tipped him off to a research job at this hedge fund. So he went in for an interview with the founder. And the two of them hit it off. And we didn't even talk finance. We talked uh, philosophy. Peter's a big fan of the the French uh, literary critic, philosopher, anthropologist, René Girard. He was a professor at Stanford. And, and we, we talked a lot about a Girard's ideas in, in that interview. And by the end, Peter asked me if I'd like to help him teach a class on philosophy and technology at Stanford Law School. Uh, and then in the meantime, be an analyst at his hedge fund. So this is totally uh, unlikely uh, job, but it was such an interesting offer that, that I said yes. That Peter, the man who hired Michael back in 2010, was Peter Thiel, the controversial libertarian billionaire. He wasn't as controversial at the time, or even very well known outside of the world of tech investing. And what Gibson might not have known at the time was that Thiel had long been looking for a way to blow up higher education. Ever since he was a student back at Stanford University, He'd been criticizing colleges for, as he saw it, breeding conformity. Back in 1998, Thiel even co-wrote a book complaining about how, in his view, multiculturalism was leading to groupthink and how he wanted to reverse the tragic disintegration of American universities and restore true academic excellence. Now that Thiel was one of the richest people in the world, thanks to co-founding PayPal and being one of the first investors in Facebook, he had recently looked into starting his own university through his foundation. That idea of building a new university fizzled, though, after Thiel decided that colleges were too regulated to make the kind of changes that he wanted within the traditional system. But there was a new idea, and for that, they wanted Gibson's help. On Gibson's very first day at his job at Thiel's firm, a coworker came over to his desk with an urgent assignment. And my uh, colleague, Jim O'Neill, comes to my desk. It's 9 a.m. And he says, we got to go to Peter's house. I'm like, why? Well, last night on the plane ride back from New York to San Francisco, we were talking about ways of, okay, we can't start a new university, but what can we do instead? So Peter and, and these guys on the plane, they had this conversation. They thought, what if, what if we pay people not to go to college and they can work on startups and research? And tomorrow, he was set to be interviewed at one of the biggest conferences in, in tech, uh, TechCrunch Disrupt at the time. He, he said, what if we announce this? So I sh I'm at work, and Jim comes to me, and he's like, hey, we got to go to this TechCrunch Disrupt conference because we're going <laughs> to announce. At the time, it was called the Anti-Road Scholarship. We're like, wow, okay, uh, I went to Oxford uh, to study philosophy. I knew some Rhodes Scholars. I thought they were insufferable. So, you know, with that, when, when they said anti-Rhodes Scholarship, I was like, all right, I'm in. Now the clock was ticking to design this anti-Rhodes Scholarship. So we leave the office. We go to Peter's house. He lived nearby. We get in a car and then uh, we're on our way and we're, and we're talking about, okay, what do we call this program? Uh, how much money should we award? 
Um, we get to the conference, we're backstage and we're still discussing these types of things. Uh, it's a little chaotic because you know, all sorts of people want Peter's attention, but we're sitting there huddled backstage and, and, and getting the details down. They settled on calling it the 20 Under 20 Teal Fellowship. And they decided they would dole out huge grants to young people who agreed not to go to any college for two years and instead start a company or a big world-changing project. And then, boom, Peter's on stage. He's interviewed by Sarah Lacey. You can see this on YouTube to this day, uh, where Peter announces almost in the present tense <laughs> that, this, that, that this program exists, that we're taking applications. It's a program uh, for uh, offering um, grants of up to $100,000 to up to 20 people under age 20. For, uh, for starting something new. For dropping out of school. Of uh, stopping out of school. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, every parent's worst nightmare. You're offering your kids money that um, you would not know that, you know, we're inventing this on the fly <laughs> all the way up until that point. Teal was trying to change the public conversation about higher education. And at the time, 13 years ago, even things like a gap year were more uncommon. As Sarah Lacey, the tech columnist you just heard interviewing Teal on stage, said, this was every parent's nightmare, to give money to their kid to not do this stable thing of going to college. But to paraphrase Facebook's founder, Mark Zuckerberg, Teal wanted to move fast and break things in the name of innovation. And to him, college was one of those things well worth breaking in the interest of moving faster. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at Ed Surge. We're a nonprofit newsroom. We're covering all levels of education. This week, we are looking at the rise and the impact of the Teal Fellowship. Because the program, it's still going. Still paying $100,000 each to 20 young people a year not to go to college. These days, it's not talked about very much. And that might be because now it's hardly controversial to question the value of college. In fact, these days, skepticism of higher ed is at an all-time high. The number of young people who say a college degree is very important has fallen to 41%, used to be 74% 10 years ago. And families across many income brackets are more open to waiting on college or skipping it altogether. So we have been wondering... What happened to the public belief in college? And how is that impacting the choices that young people are making about what to do after high school? This is the first episode of a series we're calling Doubting College. And we're starting with a deep dive into the story of the Teal Fellowship. Because whether you've heard of it or not, or whether you like it or not, it played a role in bringing a hyper-skeptical critique of college into the mainstream of American discourse. Hearing that origin story made me wonder, why was Peter Thiel in such a hurry to create and announce his fellowship at TechCrunch Disrupt? After all, he had been complaining about higher ed for decades at that point. Why was he so bent on announcing it then, even before he really had time to build it? It turns out Thiel wanted to time the news to correspond with a Hollywood movie that was scheduled to be released that very weekend. That movie, which everyone in Silicon Valley and actually in the culture at large, was talking about was the social network. 
depicting the contentious creation of Facebook. Gibson told me this behind-the-scenes story in our conversation, but he also details it in a book he published last year about the founding of the Teal Fellowship, called Paper Belt on Fire, How Renegade Investors Sparked a Revolt Against the University. Aaron Sorkin had written, you know, one of his snappy, funny uh, scripts about the whole thing. But it was clear because the script had been leaked that, you know, Peter and Zuckerberg were going to be portrayed uh, somewhat negatively. Teal barely appears as a character in the movie. His scene is less than a minute long. But he does come across as the embodiment of soulless financing. And as brief as his appearance is, he sets in motion the central conflict of the movie, Mark Zuckerberg cutting his best friend out of Facebook's founding. Maybe Teal was looking to reframe the pretty negative portrayal of himself and other venture capitalists in the film. In the story of his fellowship, after all, billionaires are the Robin Hoods handing out money to underdogs to make the world better. So maybe that was his reason. Or maybe he just wanted to capitalize on the attention the movie was bringing him since at that time he was far less well-known than he is today. And some say he was looking to raise his profile. But maybe the movie just reminded Teal that Mark Zuckerberg was so young when he created Facebook. But I think it was, you know, Peter's experience with Zuckerberg because it was, you know, he invested in Facebook. Peter was the first outside investor. And I think Zuckerberg was 20 years old uh, when he pitched Peter, some, somewhere around there. And then there's the storied tradition in Silicon, Silicon Valley of uh, Steve Jobs, uh, Bill Gates, uh, other people who uh, became quite famous and successful and, and they did not finish college. I wonder if the Teal Fellowship would have ever come about if that Aaron Sorkin film hadn't happened to come out that weekend. But Teal probably would have done something with his fame and fortune to fight higher education. Because as he's said publicly many times, he feels that the college system has what he sees as the irrational following of a religion. And a corrupt religion at that. Here's how Teal put it at an event seven years ago hosted by Bloomberg. If you get into the right college, you know, you'll be saved. If you don't, you're in trouble. And I've sort of described uh, the college, the sort of dramatic version I've said is, you know, colleges, they're like... They're as corrupt as the Catholic Church was 500 years ago. Uh, they're sort wow. of charging people more and more. It's the system of indulgences. You have this priestly or professorial class that doesn't do very much work. And then, um, and then you basically tell people that uh, if you get a diploma, you're saved. You know, otherwise, you go to hell. You, know, you go to Yale or you go to jail. That's sort of... A, <laughs> that's sort of um, and, um, and what I think we need to, we need to push back um, on this... Um, on this that this, this idea that the only way you get saved is, you know, Catholic Church 500 years ago or today, the only way to get saved is by, uh, by getting a diploma from college. Early on, plenty of big-name experts pushed back against this idea of the fellowship. The economist Larry Summers, who has served as a U.S. Treasury Secretary and is a former president of Harvard, has called the Teal Fellowship the single most misdirected bit of philanthropy in this decade. The editor of Slate magazine at the time, Jacob Weisberg, called it a nasty idea. He wrote, Teal's program is premised on the idea that America suffers from a deficiency of entrepreneurship. In fact, we may be on the verge of the opposite. 
a world in which too many weak ideas find funding, and every kid dreams of being the next Mark Zuckerberg. This threatens to turn the risk-taking startup model into a white boy's version of the NBA, diverting a generation of young people from the love of knowledge for its own sake and respect for middle-class values. I reached out to Weisberg for an interview for this episode. He declined to go on tape, but he did send this email comment. My view is unchanged. Young tech entrepreneurs need a humanistic education above all. We're all suffering from their lack of grounding in philosophy, history, and literature. Peter Thiel's stunted adolescent worldview is a case in point. To the leaders of the Thiel Fellowship, these takedowns were simply proof that they were onto something. After all, they were trying to take down the accepted system, so they didn't expect it to cheer them on. But as I talked more with Michael Gibson, I realized that for him, the complaints about higher ed were as practical as they were ideological. He didn't object to the idea of a humanistic education. He just didn't think it was working for students as advertised. You know, how to, be, how to, be, how to live, how to love, how to become a better person, um, how to think for yourself. I think college isn't a place to do this anymore, or maybe it never was. Um, I know they advertise these things, but I would hold them accountable for false advertising because show me the evidence that you, just because you get an A in some course where you discuss some novels, now suddenly you have a richer understanding of the problems of life. I don't think so. Uh, so they haven't offered much, much evidence that they do these things they say they do. And there's a lot of evidence that they don't. Um, we could talk about, you know, there's a pilot, 100 years of research in the psychology of education showing that there's no transfer of learning. Uh, what does that mean? It means if you learn what, something in one domain, can you apply it in another domain? And students consistently fail these tests all the time. So colleges aren't even teaching you how to think. That, that is fallacious. Um, so, you know, I, I agree with you. I think, uh, we, I think we should all strive to be more well-rounded people. And I think there is wisdom to be attained in this world, but I, I, I don't think colleges are helping us attain it. I think that, that that's a myth. Another person hired early on to run the Teal Fellowship was Danielle Strachman, who had previously founded a project-based charter school called Innovations Academy. One of the things I asked her about was how, for many people, myself included, college is a time to discover what you're really interested in and figure out what you want to do when you grow up. Ideally, that would be how it actually works. But usually, like the study of something versus the work of something are often very, very different. I mean, I know I had this experience myself where I thought I was going to work in clinical research and I went through school and then I worked in clinical research. And I was, it's funny, I was telling this family yesterday, I was like, my job was sitting in a windowless room faxing paperwork to NIH. And <laughs> that's not what I thought doing clinical research looked like. I thought it was going to be working with patients all the time. And you know, like making discoveries. And and I learned only after getting my degree, like, oh gosh, like this is not how I want to spend my time. But there are programs like University of Waterloo. I'm actually going there this week. I love their program. They have a co-op program. Um, places like Northeastern also have this where you're doing the work of the profession alongside the study. And I think that's really brilliant because then as a student, you can pivot and actually really try something on and say, okay, like I interned at a big company and I loved it, or I interned at a small startup and I loved it, or I interned in this particular field and I loved it, or, oh, I really didn't like it. So let's change my course of study to like move in these other directions. 
But what's also interesting too is, um, you know, college has stayed, you know, four years for so long and it just doesn't make sense anymore. Strackman also brought experience working with homeschool students. And that has shaped her belief that these days, formal schooling isn't necessary as a way to figure out the best path. You know, when you and I were going to school, like there was that figuring it out process and, you know, laptops were just barely coming out when I went to college. And so it's like, you weren't going to crack open a laptop and like start a business or like find internships all over the world through Google search. It's like that just didn't exist. And so now everything is new and different. So I like to, I like to describe it a little bit like transportation as soon as, you know, uh, as soon as the, like the airplane is taking, you know, regular passengers, uh, it doesn't make sense to drive across the country every time you want to go somewhere. And it's the same now where, uh, you know, it's been over 20 years since I was in school and things are super, super different. And it doesn't make sense for degrees to be four years anymore with the exception of, you know, to pads one's pocket with financing. Uh, and in fact, schools have gotten more restrictive in terms of, okay, well, now you have to do your gen eds and you have to do all these courses. And we've talked to many Teal fellows over time who said, you know, they could have, you know, they'd been coding since they were nine years old. They knew they wanted a CS degree, but nope, you've got to start at 101 at MIT because that's what they demand. Um, and that's just ridiculous. Like you should be able to test out of stuff and say, oh, okay, great. Like, yeah, let's start at the, you know, 300 level classes and so on, but they don't do that. So the Teal Fellowship seems designed for a world where, as Strachman puts it, someone can crack open their laptop and just start doing the job they want to do. The fellowship does give some structure and support to the winners, in addition to their big checks, connecting them to mentors and resources to start their companies and projects. As I spent more time talking with these creators of the Teal Fellowship, one thing that struck me was that the program is based on the premise that when it comes to innovation, age really matters. And for them to get world-changing ideas out there, the younger the innovator, the better. You know, one of the sad facts of life, I think, is that we do have a window in, in our lives when we are more creative. Um, it just, you know, you look across all sorts of fields. It could be mathematics. It could be chess. It could be novel writing. Um, and it could be science. Um, but there is a, a, a time period in people's lives where they, they tend to be more creative than others. Um, Benjamin Jones at Northwestern University has done a lot of research on this. He looked at patent filings, Nobel Prize won over the years. You know, He looked at how old were you when you earned your first patent or wrote your scientific paper? How old were you when you wrote the paper that won you the Nobel Prize? And how long was your career? And we can look at scientists just as we look at baseball players. Um, and what Jones found was that in, you know, over time, all these numbers increased because universities got slower at getting people to the frontier of knowledge. Uh, but what he also found was that they were not as productive in the later life, even though they lived longer. Um, so it's like in, in 1900, uh, the average age at first invention was something like 23. Now it's closer to 30. The Nobel Prize pa winning paper that used to be written in your early th 30s, now it's closer to 40. Um, and that would, wouldn't mean anything except for the fact that we have this window where we seem to be more productive, and, and, and now it's, it's shrunk over time. Uh, so I, I do really think that there is something to be, that we're missing something if we're not getting younger people out to the frontier faster. 
I was struck by this comparison that Gibson made to star athletes. If I learned of a young superstar pitcher at a high school somewhere, I probably wouldn't put him in a training camp away from competition for four to eight years and then put him on the competitive circuit. Yet to the folks at the Teal Fellowship, this is what college was doing to brilliant young thinkers. So as these two started the Teal Fellowship from scratch, they saw themselves as talent scouts for brains. In those early days, soon after Teal announced the fellowship, they weren't getting that many takers for the idea of paying people not to go to college. We got 400 applications the first year. Uh, you know, so you had a 10% chance of becoming a finalist uh, and a 5% chance at becoming a Teal Fellow. So the odds were actually quite good in that first year, um, you know, comparatively anyways. And uh, we had to go out onto campuses and, uh, you know, tell people about the program and get the word out there. And I remember we went to Waterloo, actually, um, and we did this, like, you know, have coffee and bagels with the Teal Foundation thing. And this was a big learning for me. Only four or five people showed up for it. And at the time you're thinking like, oh man, bummer. Like, you know, is this a waste of time? Or, you know, we have to market more this or this or that. Of course, in sports, talent scouts are not measured by how many people they see play. They just need to find a few standouts. Maybe even just one future star. One of the people who showed up to coffee and bagels was Vitalik Buterin. You may not know that name, Vitalik Buterin, but in the tech world, he is now a big deal. He's maybe the Steven Strasberg of the crypto world. He co-founded the blockchain system called Ethereum, which allows what are known as smart contracts. Lots of people see it as a world-changing idea. And he wrote the white paper for it around the time of that bagel meetup. He was 19 years old at the time. He was granted a Teal Fellowship, and he is one of the recruits that they're most proud of. Strachman and Gibson both like to drop names of some other star Teal Fellows. Another one is Dylan Field, who used the fellowship to drop out of Brown University to help start a web-based graphics editing company called Figma. And Adobe bought it last year for $20 billion. Uh, two of the other people also became Teal Fellows over time. I think one person was like too old to be a Teal Fellow. So it, the quality was very, very high. And I, and I would w way rather have coffee and bagels with like three or four people who ended up becoming Teal Fellows than have a room of 500 people who are there because they've heard about the prestige of this program. They they want to be part of it and, and so on, um, you know, but maybe not find someone like a Vitalik. Uh, because someone like that is is uh, sort of more of a needle in a haystack. By the time they had recruited their first class of 20 fellows, they were excited to show the world. So we had a PR team that we worked with, and um, I remember they told us in the in the early days we were going to launch the first announcement about the first set of Teal Fellows. And they told us, like, they were sort of trying to, I think, temper our expectations. And they said, you know, at most, at the very longest, you get two weeks of airtime. And then it's over. No one even knows what you are anymore. And we were like, okay, cool. We're ready for that. And then media went on for at least six weeks, if not eight weeks. And our PR team was flabbergasted. They were like, we've never seen anything like this. Like, you know, uh, the foundation and Peter's hit a real nerve here about the cost of college and higher ed. Uh, and some of the corruption they're in. And it just kept going. 
and it, it, it be, you know, it was being covered, not just in the U S but globally. So it was very interesting um, to see how much this resonated with people so quickly. Of course, the Teal Fellowship picks only 20 people a year. So it's hardly making a dent as far as creating an alternative to college. That's one reason that after running the Teal Fellowship for about five years, Strachman and Gibson decided to quit working on the fellowship and strike out on their own. Starting a project they hoped would expand on the mission, they founded a venture capital firm called the 1517 Fund, and they only invest in companies that are backed by college dropouts, or people who never studied in higher ed. And keeping with that theme that higher ed is a kind of religion, their fund is named after the year Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of Castle Church in Germany to protest corruption in the Catholic Church. Part of the fund's model is to give out small grants of $1,000 each to help young people get started on a project. And naturally, the fund can give out far more of those small checks than the big awards done by the Teal Fellowship. And when we pitched Peter eight years ago on 1517, we said, you know, we think young entrepreneurship is uh, like a, a trend, not a fad. We, you know, we don't think, you know, we think this is just going to grow like a big wave. And um, and that's just been very true where there's more and more young people doing things earlier and earlier and earlier. Um, you know, I talk to 15 year olds now who are starting companies and uh, we have someone who we backed uh, when they were first 16 years old and just finished raising two million bucks and uh, just recently turned 18. Strachman is also trying to encourage others to start programs just like the Teal Fellowship. I, I gave a talk last year at a conference and, you know, the sort of main takeaway of the talk was like, let's let a thousand fellowships bloom. Like, let's find people who want to fund stuff like this, because I think these places are going to be the places where very early, you know, innovation can start, not just fellowships for young people, but fellowships for all kinds of people. So we heard about a couple all-star Teal Fellows. But what about the rest? After 13 years, how is the Teal Fellowship doing? It's worth noting that not all of the Teal Fellows dropped out of higher ed for good. Several decided to go back to college after the two-year fellowship ended. And in 2016, one Teal Fellow dropped out of the program and gave a lot of his money back to charity in protest of Teal's public support of Donald Trump's presidency. That said, the program has also succeeded in helping several young people get big projects off the ground. A columnist for Bloomberg, who himself is a venture capitalist, Aaron Brown, recently did an analysis of the 271 people who have gotten that Teal Fellowship so far. And it turns out 11 of them have gone on to start companies now valued at more than a billion dollars, making them what are called unicorns. He sees that as a pretty remarkable record for finding unicorns. Now, it's not fair to compare the Teal Fellows to random college students, right? These people are selected for high ability, for high ambition. But I said, okay, well, you know, we got Marshall Scholarships, Rhodes Scholarships. We got all these other programs, much bigger than the Teal Fellowship. And they pay people well over $100,000 to stay in school, uh, to go get additional schooling. And I said, well, you know, none of these people has distinguished themselves before age 25 with any kind of anything like the innovation of the Teal Fellows. Now, we have a Bill Clinton, Rhodes Scholar president. We have, you know, judges. We have, we have people who achieve great success in their 40s and 50s and 60s. 
typically within established institutions. We don't have people starting entirely new businesses and ideas. And I'm thinking, you know, Teal Fellowship really only concentrates on kind of business technology kind of, uh, you know, where are the, you know, great novelists, the great poets, the great uh, artists, you know, the great people in other fields, again, under age 25, it really seems like what college seems to be doing to these people, even the best of them, is delaying their success or perhaps even suppressing it. Brown has been a fan of this idea of the Teal Fellowship since he first heard about it. But he points out that plenty of colleges also run programs trying to help the next generation of entrepreneurs. It's not like colleges aren't trying, right? They're all starting these uh, venture institutes or, or, or seed incubators or things like that uh, to try to teach their students to do these things. Um, but none of those have been anywhere near as successful as just giving these kids $100,000 and, and, and sending them out to the world. But even if this program for 20 of the most self-starting people each year beats higher ed, does that really prove Peter Thiel's argument that somehow college is broken? After all, colleges serve millions of students. More than 4 million students graduated in 2021 alone. And studies show that the majority of the students who graduate from college end up economically much better off than those who don't go. Basically, the average earnings of an American with a, high school, with a, um, with a college degree are about 75% higher than the earning of that person's peer who has only a high school diploma. That's Ben Wadelsky, author of the forthcoming book, The Career Arts, Making the Most of College, Credentials, and Connections. To underline what he just pointed out, college grads make 75% more than non-college grads on average. So that's the wage premium, which is how much you earn on average when you have a college degree. And it's extremely high. It's flattened in the last 15 years or so. There was a time when it was growing it's no longer growing so fast, but it grew so much that it's really pretty remarkable. And I think that the public skepticism is a little hard to figure out because it just doesn't, it isn't supported by the facts. I think it's true, though, that people have a lot of anxiety about changes in the economy. I think that people are concerned about what their careers are going to be like over the long term. We're all living longer. We're going to have multiple job changes. So I think that people are, are skeptical because they don't really know what's going to hold them in good stead over the long term. I played Ben Wadowski, that clip from Peter Thiel, saying that colleges are corrupt as the Catholic Church was 500 years ago, to get his reaction. I'm trying to think how to put this. To the extent you interpret, you read Peter Thiel as saying, we need more and better alternatives after high school, by all means, I'm all for it. But the way he is often read. His, his fellowship is off with, a, of course, a minuscule number of people. I mean, again, not really, not the kind of sample that you could ever draw any kind of meaningful conclusion uh, from as if you were an economist, for example. Um, but the, the takeaway message has been college is overrated and we should be encouraging people to, to do something different. The idea that there is some kind of a you know, college uberalis, you know, movement that's shoving this down people's throat is really is really um, just wrongheaded. And in my view, it's actually I mean, going back to this idea that it's like an established church. You know, if you believe in markets, as I as I do, as I would I would uh, I would hope that Peter Thiel does, um, you know, the wage premium that came to be associated 
with college, you know, particularly in you know, going into the late late 80s and 90s, you know, after, I mean, it still gets a little bit long, but, you know, there was a, a famous economist, Richard Freeman, who wrote The Overeducated American in the 1970s. And he said there were too many people with college degrees and the value was going to be eroded. Well, he was just, he's a, he's a great economist, but he was completely wrong about that. The value has exploded. And it didn't explode because we had a five-year plan from some central planner in the government saying, we decree that people should go to college and that their wages will rise. It was the free market at work. The reason that college, you know, the, the wage premium grew is because employers had a lot more uh, need of more people with more advanced education, right? And if you talk to somebody like Larry Katz, Lawrence Katz, the very well-known uh, economist at Harvard, he's probably the, the, the de- sort of the most distinguished labor historian in the country, married to Claudia Golden, who just won the Nobel Prize, you know, he will talk in, in, at great length. And I quote him a lot in my book about human capital as the explanation for degree value. Learning things makes you more valuable. This is in contrast to the signaling value, which skeptics tend to emphasize, which sort of suggests it's only because you have the piece of paper. It's just a quick and dirty way for employers to sort through lots of applicants. There's been a pre-selection process in the college application process, and that's why they just kind of use degrees as a signal. But there just isn't really great evidence for that. Yeah, of course, it's a factor. It might Some economists might say it's 20 or a 30% factor because it is useful as a shorthand. But the idea that that is the the, 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 the major factor that determines degree value, that just isn't borne out by the evidence. But the creators of the Teal Fellowship argue that college isn't teaching students enough, or enough of the right kinds of things, to prepare them for today's world. And they argue that alternatives to college should be taken more seriously and be seen as more prestigious than they are. And that a college degree shouldn't be required in as many fields as it is. They point to a growing trend by employers and some state governments to remove the college degree requirement from more jobs. The idea that if all these states that are getting so much attention for having with, you know, taken away degree requirements, that they're somehow, you know, there's this campaign with Byron Algeese's group, draw, you know, tear the paper ceiling. The idea that the state requirements for degrees for, for some jobs or corporate requirements for degrees, that somehow that, that's really what's driving the, the, the obsession with college. And if you just drop those requirements and you just accept people as having skills already and they already have these great abilities, then we will, we will do away with the tyranny of college. That so far isn't really borne out by the evidence. There is this term that economists love to use, and I'm not an economist, obviously, but I, as a journalist, I've always loved talking to economists, and it's called revealed preferences. And that basically is about the idea you, that you should like watch what I do, not what I say. So there is lots of evidence, including from a big study that LinkedIn released about two or three months ago, too late for my book, but I, I did write about it in, in, uh, on LinkedIn, actually. And they looked in some key sectors, and I'm going to see if actually I can, and then I have, uh, no, I don't have the, hold on one second, I'm going to actually try and quote you the exact numbers because I have this from a speech that I gave. Hold on one second. So, yeah, this was a study of job listings on the LinkedIn platform, right? Huge platform, and they were looking at hiring trends, and they found that many, many employers have begun to emphasize skills over degrees in their job listings. You know, from 2019 to 2022, which is just three years, in these sectors, technology, information, and media, there was a 240% faster growth rate in job posts without any kind of professional degree requirement. 
So you might say, okay, this is it. We're here. The brave new world has arrived. You know, Peter Thiel and other who, others who are skeptical about degrees have, have, have won the battle. But the LinkedIn study also looked at what happened with actual hires uh, during that same period. And in those same sectors where there was a 240% faster growth rate in job listings with no requirement, there was a 3% increase in actual hires of individuals without degrees. And yes, you did hear that correctly, 240% versus 3%. So that's a great illustration of revealed preferences. In other words, even though technically more jobs no longer require a college degree, he says that in reality, almost no one without a college degree is actually getting those jobs. And that gets to the question of what are people coming out of college with? And I really think there's a lot of evidence that you know, what people need over the long term for career success is a mixture of broad education um, and the sort of skills that help you navigate many job changes over time as we all live longer and have many more changes. You also need targeted skills. You know, it could be computer languages, it could be nursing, it could be teaching skills. And those are really important. But those kinds of skills have a fairly short half-life, meaning that they don't last forever. You know, when I was in college back in the dark ages, I I was a literature major, but I, I took some other classes like statistics and computer programming. I learned to program in basic. Well, I'm sure by the time I graduated... Nobody was using BASIC anymore. It was no longer a thing. So this is why you have to balance the sort of in-demand skills and the in-demand credentials um, with the broader skills, whether it's, you know, writing, communicating, analytical thinking, critical thinking, all of those terms. There's also a danger, according to Wodalski and others, that the argument that college is corrupt will keep people from attending college who would almost certainly benefit and rise into the middle class, maybe, from going. Until you can point to real evidence and data, you know, that's pretty robust over time, that's something equivalent to what we have about college value. And there are lots of caveats. We know college value is not universal. It depends a lot on what you study and, you know, obviously whether you complete. Although the big Achilles heel of our system is a very low completion rate and we need to do better. But I think we just want to be careful not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. You know, I'm, I'm to, to use another expression, I think we have to mend it, don't end it. You know, I think you don't want to say college is imperfect. It's not working for some people. It's overrated. So let's just walk away. I think that would be crazy. I asked Danielle Strachman what she would say to that concern. Well, I, I think for me, you know, personally, as someone who's worked in education a long time, uh, for me, it's really about making conscientious decisions. And the headline Uh, Peter Thiel says you should think about whether or not it's feasible for you to go to school and what your outcomes will be in the long term does not sell headlines. Uh, And we don't get to write our headlines. So the headlines were always Peter Thiel says drop out of school. And it was like, okay, that's not actually what we're talking about. Um, We're saying for some people, it is going to make sense uh, from an opportunity cost standpoint to say, hey, you know what, some ideas just can't wait. Dylan should be starting Figma, you know, Vitalik should be starting Ethereum and so on. But for everybody, it's this individual choice. Um, But also what I also have heard, you know, sort of about this upward mobility message is that there's a there's a lot of a narrative sold on that. Um, But what I what I also hear from people is, oh, well, now I came out saddled in debt and I'm actually worse off than when I went. And now I can you know, I can get a job, but I could have got the same job four years ago. Or what I also hear on the economic mobility side is, 
yeah, and now I want to go get that internship, but the internship isn't paid. And so the student who is from a more well-to-do family can get that internship while the student who can't has to go and work at that entry-level position that they could have had four years previously anyways. Um, you know, so I, I think it's just something that everyone has to consider for themselves and also think deeply about, you know, what their major is. I'm hearing more and more and more about students coming out of college and saying, and now I'm enrolling in a boot camp. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you just finished a four-year degree and now you're enrolling in a boot camp. Like, didn't you just get your degree in CS? Shouldn't you be good to go? And I've heard so many times from students oh, well, it was all sort of theoretical, so I've never actually coded something before. And so they're not really coming out with an actionable skill. Um, and I think that is also sort of a meme that's picked up is this idea of of boot camps and upskilling in different ways and that there are different ways to learn than just going to college. Uh, and I think the job market is seeing this as well, where they're realizing like, okay, we have to have training programs inside of you know what we're doing um, because a, a degree is not necessarily going to mean that someone is coming in with skills for the job. This debate about the value of college and the growing doubts about it may stem from bigger questions that go back to the founding of this country and about the American dream that anyone can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Regular listeners will remember that we did a whole series on the bootstraps idea and how it's impacted education. You can search for Bootstraps on your podcast app to find it. And it came up in my conversation for this episode with Ben Wadalski. The Teal Fellowship and all the sort of fuss that surrounded that was just an early indication of, you know, this, uh, this skepticism about degrees is in some sense been around for a while. I think that Americans have always had a really strong practical streak and we have, on the one hand, the documented, you know, improvements in, in high school and then college graduation rates, the documented economic benefits that come with that. But we also have had a persistent sense of all that book learning may just be too uh, excessive for what people really need. They need practical career sil- skills. They need savvy. They need know-how. And Peter Thiel's fellowship was a sort of the extreme example of that. Waldowski's point is that education isn't about just serving the needs of these outliers. And then if we focus on outliers, it distorts our view. Just because Bill Gates and Steve Jobs didn't need college doesn't mean college isn't necessary. The whole question of outliers like Bill Gates got me thinking about what colleges should actually deliver. Is it primarily about preparing people for jobs? Is it about creating well-rounded folks? Does it do any of those things well enough? And on those questions, even outliers can disagree. It turns out that the Bloomberg columnist that we heard from earlier, Aaron Brown, he went to Harvard. And in fact, he was in the same class as a name that's come up in this episode as a world-changing innovator and dropout. Yeah, yeah, I knew Bill. Um, I stuck around and graduated, and, uh, and 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 he went off. I actually, Bill and I are both from Seattle, and I knew him uh, in Seattle before college. And everybody knew he was going to be this incredible success, you know, even before uh, any of the, nobody knew what kind, you know, it wasn't going to be computers or something else. But uh, but yeah, he was. Do you think Bill Gates, like, so it's so interesting that 
you say Bill Gates was going to be somebody. What was that? Can you give one example of like what was that? Because I'm sure it's what Teal Fellows look for. Um, maybe um, he had you know started and sold some businesses. Well, I, I think even possibly before high school. I mean, they were you know like uh, he had this like delivery business and things like that. But just talking, I mean, he was just he was filled with ideas and and he did them. Um, and, and of course, he was extremely smart. He went to uh, Lakeside as uh, sort of, uh, um, you know, gifted and talented high school uh, in Seattle. And his dad was moderately wealthy. And uh, so, you know, he had kind of the, the resume that you say, OK, this guy, this guy could do something. But it was mostly personality. I mean, the guy was just just seemed like he had a plan and and uh and he, and he was pushing for it all the time and he had three times the energy of anybody else do you think so your own harvard experience i mean if you don't mind me asking like do you think it held you back or or on balance like or helped because i'm sure you probably got networking effects out of it as well of like you know professionally you know it, it, it's hard to tell my feeling you know, and so in some ways, I'm the last person who could tell you this, right? You have to know somebody. But I think I was always the sort of laid back person who wants to learn a lot, who's not driven to make a billion dollars, who's not driven to find some grand new idea, but who wants to learn a lot about everything. Uh, I'm very happy, you know, teaching college, uh, investing in a hedge fund, uh, doing some projects that are fun and so on. Uh, I would not swap places with Bill Gates or or any of the other um, people, you know, <laughs> I don't want to do things I don't like. I don't like to work too hard. So in many ways, I think Harvard was perfect for me. You know, I could soak up all this stuff. I took, I love taking courses in fields I knew nothing about. Yeah. It always felt kind of like sneaking, right? You're getting these secrets. You're just sneaking in the back. You're getting the secret. You're not, you know, I, I, I don't really know or care very much about art, but just to go and hear somebody who really does, talk about it and, 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 you know, make you see what, at least understand why other people are excited about this. Um, I would feel poor if I hadn't done that, but I could also do that on, on, on the internet. Uh, in terms of contacts, um, not really. I mean, I guess, I know it opens doors. It, it, it did mean, you know, I could, my resume went to the top of the pile, which is nice. It meant I could go to grad schools I chose, you know, and so, so it's a nice to have. Um, but, um, I was, you know, it didn't hold me back, but I wasn't chomping at the bit to go anywhere anyway. So did Harvard do enough for Aaron Brown? Did Stanford do enough for Peter Thiel? Where should we set the bar? And what can we make available for the millions of people currently enrolled in college? One group we haven't heard from this episode are current college students. But don't worry. I've been talking to some of them. For the next installment of our series, I visit a public high school and talk to students and guidance counselors about how today's young people view the choice of whether or not to go to college. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we explore how education is changing. If you like the show and you want to see us do more of these narrative episodes, please write that in a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever. Leaving a rating or review is the best way to support the show and keep us growing. This episode was written by me, Jeff Young, and you can find me on the web at jeffyoung.net. Editing this episode by Rob McGinley Myers. Additional editing help from Becky Koenig. Music this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. 
We'll be back next week with a regular episode of the Ed Surge Podcast and look for part two of this series early next year. Until then, thanks for listening. Thank you.